The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. So, uh, let me invite you now to open up God's Word. We're turning together to our uh, much beloved book of Ecclesiastes. So, if you haven't already come there, let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes, uh, we have been acknowledging along the way here, uh, is written thousands of years ago, and yet it addresses issues that are so relevant and modern to us, uh, and yet they present those issues in a very challenging way. Uh, I have been uh, publicly acknowledging the challenge that Ecclesiastes has been both to preach and to teach, and uh, so we are, we, are, we are walking through this challenge together, but one of the things that I hope that you're seeing as we walk through God's Word together expositionally, one verse, one chapter at a time, is that God's truth is filled with wisdom and insight for His people. All of His Word is for all of His people. We don't skip over the hard things. And as a result, we learn of God's wisdom. So, we come to Ecclesiastes chapter 8 this morning. And uh, if you haven't already, find it there in a pew Bible on page 557. Let me just say a brief word before we pray and read the text. There is a time when looking at Bible texts, there is a time to investigate the trees. There is a time to investigate the bark on the trees. But there is also a time to keep the forest view in mind. We are going to look at chapter 8 according to the forest view, not the bark on individual tree view this morning. Uh, not just because uh, the preacher in Ecclesiastes 8 would very much escape your pastor uh, being able to do that. I, I think that's just far too, too challenging. I think chapter 8 is especially difficult, but I think chapter 8 presents one big picture, and I don't want us to miss the big picture for the small details. Not that the small details aren't important, but we want to see the big picture of what chapter 8 is presenting. And before we read it, just remind yourself of what the preacher is doing in Ecclesiastes. We call him the preacher because it's actually a Hebrew word, koheleth. It means preacher or teacher. But the point is, is that it's somebody who assembles a gathering. So if it's a preacher, we call him a congregation. We could call it a classroom full of students if he's a, a professor or a teacher. Nevertheless, the speaker has gathered a group. And to that group, he is addressing the realities of life in a fallen world under the sun, asking what wisdom and insight is there in this fallen world in which there is so much pain and struggle and sorrow? Is there more to life in a fallen world than just life in a fallen world under the sun? Is there yet more for us? And the preacher, the teacher is saying, yes, of course, but we need to see. So... By God's grace, we hope to see it as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that uh, your spirit would come, would come upon us as we hear your word, both read and proclaimed, that that same Holy Spirit might illuminate our minds to give us understanding, might rest upon our hearts to help us to, to believe, and Lord, also to be transformed by your truth. May it May it speak to us both corporately as the people of God, but also individually as people loved by you. And so, Lord, as these words were so recorded for us, 
May they they also be marked upon our hearts and bear fruit. To the glory of your name we ask it. Amen. And now, here from Ecclesiastes 8, this is the word of God. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say... Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of a king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and to be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom, And to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. And I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. May he write his truth on our hearts. Do keep your Bible open here in Ecclesiastes 8 as we attempt to understand just what, just what is this preacher on about? Maybe you ask that question of me week to week from time to time. Just what is this preacher on about? If we can't make sense of the point, what is the point? Uh, my preaching professor in seminary, his big kick was you should not have three points, two points, five points. You should have one point, one very clear point. Now that's not to say you can't have other points beneath that point, but the message should be clear. So, what is this preacher's message in Ecclesiastes chapter eight? Well, sometimes life isn't fair, is it? And that's just all we should say about it. Because that's what the preacher is saying. Sometimes life just is not fair. Now, I'm not sure how old a child is on average when they learn to protest the scales of justice 
right? That's not fair. It's not fair. Why? Why, why can't I do this? Why is it not fair? Not just children, though, but you and I carry the burdens and grudges of the protest. That's not fair as well from our very experiences, don't we? You do. So do I. That's not fair. That's what this chapter is about. This chapter is about when life is not fair in a fallen world, which is all the time. And what do we make of it? What do we, what do, we do with it? Ecclesiastes is so gritty, if you haven't already figured that out. It is gritty and honest and on the ground, in your face, with the common realities of life, when life is not fair. Not just the small things, the car that blows past you going 90 when you get pulled over by the police officer for only doing five over, right? You say, well, that's not fair. But it's talking about the, the, the deeper things, right? The things that sting more deeply than a moving violation. The diagnosis, the disruption in the family. These things, right, that cause us to say, this is not fair. The first nine verses address this reality that sometimes life isn't fair under the metaphor of living life under an earthly king who is an unjust ruler, a dictator, some kind of evil civil government authority. In this context, it's a king, but you could insert whatever you want just for the sake of metaphor, but the point is living under unrighteous leadership. And the preacher asks the question in verse 1, who knows the interpretation of the thing? Meaning, who can make sense out of all of this? Who knows? It's a rhetorical question. Who can make sense out of living under cruel leadership, foolish leadership, ignorant leadership? In this illustration, the king has power over his people, and oftentimes that power is exercised to the injury of the subjects because they have no power. And they ask, what can we do? What can we do under this harsh ruler? You see in verse 4, for the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Meaning, we cannot put this king under our scrutiny because we exist under his. His law, his rule, his ways, his dictates, his commands, and not the other way around. Now, if we were to spend a great deal of time in just these verses here through uh, verses 1 to 9, we would be able to see that there are some implications and applications that come out of here. And not only here, but, for example, other places in the New Testament that speak to Christian believers and how to live life underneath the rule of a civil government that may perhaps disagree with your worldview or take you in a different direction. If we were to spend more time on that, we would. But the big picture here is simply this. What happens when we exist in a system that causes us to say this is not fair, determine it to be unrighteous and protest this is not fair? And the reason why it begins here is because the preacher is setting you up. He's setting you up to ask this question. If you are so quick to raise the protest that's not fair to your earthly rulers, how easy will it be for you to make the same protest to God Almighty and assume unrighteous things about Him? Assume wrong things about Him. Do we respond to God in this way? Is the question then. So the first nine verses set us up for that very question. And to that question, we could say there are two responses. 
Just like in Ecclesiastes, constantly showing us there is a foolish way and there is a wise way. There is a way that is wrong and a way that is right. So the preacher takes us there. The foolish response goes in a very interesting direction. We might even be able to anticipate it. The foolish response, seeing that things are unfair, results in a famous worldview and system and philosophy that comes out in verse 15. Just glance at it, but let me tell you that three or four hundred years before the birth of Jesus, there was a man named Epicurus, and Epicurean philosophy suggested that you are just material. There is no such thing as the spirit. There is no immortality associated with the physical aspects of you. You live, and then you die, and then that's it. Epicurean philosophy. Well, prior to Epicurus comes the preacher suggesting that if life is just unfair and if that's just the way it is, so shouldn't we, verse 15, command, command joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. If it just doesn't matter anyway and if it's all just unfair, shouldn't we just get our own as much as we can, as often as we can. Eat, drink, rejoice, for tomorrow we die, says the Epicurean. Let's get the best we can now because you never know what's around the corner, what life's going to bite you in the leg tomorrow, so let's live it up today. I mean, kids don't say this anymore, and you know, the whole YOLO business, right? It's ridiculous. But, but, but it is embedded into a worldview that says, Let's just live for today. Let's throw out tomorrow. Let's throw out all care because this world isn't fair. So let's live it up today. As much happiness, as much contentment as we can gather up for ourselves now because who knows what comes out tomorrow. And that's a strange thing, isn't it? It's strange to operate that way in a worldview that says, well, it doesn't matter anyway. We're all just material. So who cares anyway? But how is it? How is it that a person that operates on a purely materialistic worldview, who says there's nothing beyond this life, that we're just physical beings, we're all emerging from the primordial ooze, how is it that you can claim that there's such a thing as unfair in the first place? You see, it takes an acknowledgement of a universal law giver to say that there is a law that is broken. Or it takes an acknowledgement of a universal righteousness standard in order to say something's not fair. If we proclaim it's not fair, we are acknowledging that there is a fair. Well, where does the spectrum of right and wrong and fair and unfair come from if not from an almighty God and creator? It is self-contradictory to operate in a purely materialistic worldview saying that's not fair, it's contradictory, it doesn't make sense. How is it that uh, Shakespeare and uh, Joseph Stalin can emerge from the same primordial ooze with no difference to moral character whatsoever? Is that really the way? The preacher wants you to see that, to uh, operate under the way of suggesting this is not the way. It's actually a foolish conclusion. The way you respond to life being not fair in a world under the sun is to realize that there is more to life than just under the sun. The preacher is constantly saying we can consider life as just under the sun or we could consider life under heaven. And by that he means life that factors God into the equation. But if you don't, 
if you don't factor God in, if you just have a purely materialistic worldview, if you just view life as under the sun, you can't even claim that something is fair or unfair because where do you get it from? So, that's foolish, the preacher says. So what is wise? What is wise? When we ask that question, we of course come with a desire because we want to be wise, we don't want to be foolish, so what is the wise response? The wise response comes in several places, but first of all, verse 12. Verse 12 says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, which is calling back from chapter 7. Chapter 7 was emphasizing the fact, why, why is it that, that bad things happen to good people? Do you remember that from last week? Why is it that bad things happen to good people? Why is it that the righteous suffer the punishments of the unrighteous, and yet the unrighteous seem to not have any difficulty in their life whatsoever? In fact, they flourish. Why is that? The preacher is calling that back. All that tension. Still in verse 12, he says, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. That is to say, those who don't view life just under the sun, but rather life under heaven in the sight of God. There is a recompense that comes out in verse 13, but it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. You see, the wise person is factoring not just today, but eternity and ultimacy. Saying that God will ultimately recompense. It's not for nothing that you pursue righteousness. And that's the big thing that will oftentimes trip up the Christian believer in this life. When they see the unbeliever and the wicked pursuing all sorts of things. And experiencing no difficulty. And in fact seeming they're having all kinds of reward. The temptation, remember, was for the believer to say, well, pff, Why bother? I'm just going to toss it in with them and live it up, right? The preacher says in verse 13, No. Because you know that you're evaluating life as more than just today. You know that you're evaluating life as more than just under the sun, but rather in the sight of God, under heaven, that there is eternity. But that doesn't mean that you have all the details explained. And this is the beloved and hard thing about the book of Ecclesiastes, is that it presents problem after problem after problem and kind of chips in a solution every now and then, maybe. Because even though you choose to live life as under heaven, in the sight of God, as more than just a day for an eternity, that doesn't mean you have everything explained to you. That comes out especially in verses 16 and 17. Be ready to look there. But here he's about to say that just because you see that there is more to life than just this life, just because you choose to view life under heaven than rather under the sun, that doesn't mean that you somehow have an insider track to things being explained to you. It doesn't mean that you get some sort of privileged information. He says in verse 16, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, what did he see? That man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Who is the most intelligent person you know? They don't know. Ultimately, is what the preacher is saying. Everything. They might be wise 
on a human spectrum in the sight of other people, but there is an infinite knowledge that is possessed in the mind of God, the creator of knowledge, that is not revealed to man. So here is the preacher's big answer to the question, why is life so unfair? Ready? Because it is. And you might be the kind of person who hears that and says, no, no, no. Not good enough. Right? I mean, I demand more than that. Well, then you're back to the metaphor that he started at the first. Who are we to say to the king, no, I demand that you answer me. Then you're in Job's shoes. Then you're in Job's shoes at the end in chapter 38, 39, and 40. So, what should we do with this? What do, we, what do we make of this, right? Because we are facing the reality of life in a fallen world that is oftentimes not fair. We face the same circumstance. And to one group, they say, well, if it's all unfair anyway, let's live it up today and go this way. That is the foolish way. The wise way is to recognize that life is oftentimes unfair, but that doesn't mean that just because you choose to live in the sight of God and believe, that doesn't mean that you're somehow informed in the infinite mysteries of the universe. So let's be clear about a few things. Let's be clear about a few things relative to what is clear and what is not clear to us because ultimately the preacher's answer is, well, it's just sometimes unfair. But the Bible says more, okay, than just in the book of Ecclesiastes. So for example, if you drink and drive and commit manslaughter and end up in prison, it doesn't make sense for you to sit around and say, why are these terrible things happening to me, right? Why? Because you have culpability, right? The responsible agent of moral decision making, aren't you? You can't buy your choices, do something, and then sit back and say, oh, woe is me, why is this happening to me? It's your own fault. You reap what you've sown. But there are also times in our lives that things happen to us that we might be tempted to say, this is not fair. Complain a little bit. Sometimes things happen to us because God wants to teach us, to train us, to draw us closer to himself, to help us to grow in holiness. The Bible has a lot to say about that. That sometimes our experience of life in a fallen world is intended to stir up the realization that things are not in this world as they should be. And by that recognition, we are realizing that we are made for more than just the things of this earth. God is at work to create that in us. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Sometimes by our afflictions, God intends to draw us in and teach us so that we are transformed from just the protest of that's not fair to submission to his sovereign will. But that's not what the preacher is talking about here. We have to go beyond the book of Ecclesiastes to get to things like that. Those are another perspectives and those are very helpful things. But the preacher here is just giving us one little part of the mosaic that the Bible teaches about this. How it is that you can be walking in the ways of God, keeping his word, living life as under heaven, and still trouble comes to you. And you ask the question, why? And the preacher's answer is, I don't know. But here's what we do know. Here's what's certain. That, that there are infinite minds of wisdom and knowledge to dig into in the, in the mind of God that we as humans will never be able to fully access. 
People, you must understand this. If you recognize that God is the creator and you the created beings, you acknowledge his transcendence, you acknowledge his imminence, and you must be content to say there are things that I do not know, will not know, and will not be able to find out, but I also recognize this, that God knows. And we must in humility be content to acknowledge the fact that just because I cannot discern and understand does not mean that it is meaningless. The Christian believer who grows in maturity acknowledges that this is certain, that although we may not know, God knows. That the wisest of theologians in all of church history might not be able to articulate the purposes of why such and such might happen in your life, but it does not mean it has no meaning. It just means that it is hid within the infinite confines of the wisdom of God's eternal being doesn't mean it's meaningless. God understands. And that's what Ecclesiastes is calling for ultimately. It's calling for us to recognize that in life in a fallen world where so often life is unfair, it is presenting that truth, but with a veil that's wrapped around it, Ecclesiastes often presents these wonderful truths, but with veils that make us kind of peer through and say, I can't quite perceive. I think I see, but I'm not sure. I see the outline of it, and I start to perceive, but I really am uncertain. But thanks be to God, there's more in the Bible than just the book of Ecclesiastes. There is, for example, Joseph at the end of Genesis in chapter 50 when he says to his brother, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because why? God knows what he's doing. And I think that you and I need to be reminded of that today, don't we? God knows what he's doing. At all times and in all ways, when things are imperceptible and even unfair according to your judgment, God knows what he is doing. Or perhaps the way the Apostle Paul says it in Romans 8, that God works all things out for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And the all things that Paul speaks of there is everything. including the circumstances and details of your life and mine. The Bible presents these truths to us and calls on us to believe them. And that's what the preacher is saying ultimately. Sometimes the only way to know and the only way to live with the unfairness of it all is to trust in the God who does know. And dear friends, if again you are someone who responds and says, but that's not good enough. I want more. I think the apostles and really all the scripture would tenderly say to you, just sit down a moment and be quiet. And wait and learn and trust God knows what he is doing. Isn't this how the gospel works ultimately? Isn't this how the Christian life works ultimately? When you, as a Christian believer, demand fair for everything, you're making the wrong demand. We don't want fairness, ultimately, from God. We don't want justice, ultimately, from God. What do we want? Mercy. If God were to enact justice upon all of us, 
it would mean that we who have fallen in Adam answer for our sins. And the good news of the gospel is that though we live in a world that has fallen in sin and live under the sun with its pressures, experiencing the curse of the fall, the thorns pierce us as we go about our lives. Jesus Christ has entered into the fallen world to redeem it and bring about mercy rather than justice for those who trust in him so that when the Christian believer goes about life and we can only seemingly dimly understand or perceive through a veil and we say, I don't know what God is doing. There are truths that we have learned about him along the way that cause us to more patiently trust and be obedient. Listen to the way Charles Spurgeon said it. He said this, God is too, con- too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be mistaken. When you cannot trace his hand, you must learn to trust his heart. When you cannot trace his hand, you must learn to trust his heart. And this is seen beautifully in this one example I'll share with you. You might know the name. Jonathan Edwards, the great colonial American Puritan preacher. Uh, He was married to a woman named Sarah. On Mother's Day, we should recognize the godliness of a mother such as Sarah Edwards, who when Jonathan died, actually from an experimental smallpox inoculation, as he had just taken up the presidency at Princeton, which would have been one of the most you know, prime positions in all the colonies at that time, he died really at a relatively young age, leaving behind many young children. And Sarah Edwards, upon the death of her husband, writes a note to one of her daughters. And this is what she says. My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hand upon our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore His goodness that we had your Father so long. But my God lives and He has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are given over to the hands of a good God. And there I am and love to be your affectionate mother, Sarah. The wisdom and godliness of a mother who has learned to trust the heart of God even when she can't trace his hand. And this is what the preacher is calling us to. And this is what the gospel calls us to. And dear people of God, As you grow in Christ and perceive this, may you likewise do the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that we are able to call you such our Father in heaven. And how we thank you that by your sovereign will, you bring all things to pass for your purposes and in your good time. Lord, we would confess that so often we do not understand and cannot perceive how anything good could possibly come from one event or the next. Nevertheless, Lord, we say we trust you because you are our creator and we believe in the goodness of your heart. And so, Father, bless now all those who hear and strengthen us in the faith of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit Edgington.com epc.org. May God bless and keep you.